before right on time so that we can max out our time together. And I want to open up by letting you know of these one, two, three, four, five other learning opportunities this week before we jump into this one. Five other opportunities this week. Tomorrow, Tuesday, we have uh, the 39 Malachot, as we do every Tuesday. Uh, tomorrow at 10 o'clock uh, Mountain Time, Arizona Time. Um, and on Wednesday, we're going to have our first of 10 sessions studying the thought of Rav Cook. That's going to be 11 o'clock with Rabbi Evan Shaish in Israel, calling in from Yerushalayim, Wednesday at 11. And then at 1.30 on Wednesday, again, Arizona time, all these times, is um, Rabbi David Polsky on police brutality in Jewish thought, thinking about policing and police accountability. And then Thursday at 10, we're doing something very unique. We're going to learn with the Jewish community of Vienna, Vienna, Austria. So if you want to come together at 10 o'clock on Thursday, we're going to learn with the Jews, a Jewish community of Vienna, Austria, and learn Parsha together and start to uh, experience some of our global Jewish community. And then later Thursday at one o'clock, Rabbi Dr. Mira Wasserman um, from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College is going to be giving a class. So all of that is in our emails, as I'm sure you get. So I will jump right in here. We are here with Dr. Elliot Rabin, who works at Prisma Center for Jewish Day Schools, where he serves as the Director of Thought Leadership and as editor, editor of Ha Yidion, the leading magazine for, about, and by Jewish day school leaders and educators. Elliot has a doctorate in comparative literature with a focus on Hebrew from Indiana University, and his most recent book is The Biblical Hero, Portraits in Nobility and Fallibility published in 2020 by the Jewish Publication Society. Elliot lives in the Bronx, New York, where it's snowing a little bit, you may have heard, with his wife and two children, and his spare time is an environmental activist with his synagogue and other organizations. Dr. Elliot Rabin, thank you so much for joining us. It is such an honor to be with you, and thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Rabbi Shmuley. Um, you, I am overawed by the quality and quantity, both of uh, the offerings that you provide and people in Phoenix and now well beyond are really so fortunate to have you, uh, have you in their midst uh, planning so many great uh, educational opportunities. Um, it is a, a double miracle that I can be with you here today, both because uh, you know, despite, despite the coronavirus, despite the pandemic, we have our, uh, we have our online Zoom opportunities to learn together. And I can sit here in the Bronx in the middle of a record-breaking uh, Northeaster <laughs> uh, snow blizzard. And you're there in beautiful 70 degree, uh, sunny Phoenix, and we can still have an opportunity to learn together. So thank you so much, all of you, for being here. I hope to, I hope it's a lively uh, a lively presentation. I've made it multimedia, so uh, you'll you'll be you'll be uh, shown different different uh, different kinds of uh, media during the the presentation. But I want because especially because I can't be there in person with you. I want to start by hearing from you. If you could just take a minute and write in the chat, tell me who are your, who's your hero? If you have a hero and uh, just very briefly, what makes them a hero of yours? Is that just biblical or anywhere? Take a minute. Elliot, is that just biblical or anywhere? It could be a, no, no, it doesn't have to be a Jew. If a, if a biblical hero is your, is your hero, then put that. If it's someone else, that's fine. <laughs> Moses, excellent. Mm, beautiful. Noah, interesting choice. Hannah, beautiful. Rabbi Shmuley, he is a hero. He's one of my heroes too. Rabbi Marsha Zimmerman, wonderful. My grandmother, hmm. Amazing, dentist and fiercely dedicated family uh, person and Jewish community member. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. A hero, it's like, there's something very personal about a hero, 
healthcare workers, definitely. The term hero is one that's in increasingly used and it's used in times of crisis and we live in time, a time of crisis. And the fact that we consider he healthcare workers and there are hundreds of thousands if not millions of them around the country, right? And other frontline workers that we consider those people our heroes is my contention that the Bible is, plays a part in our ability to see those people as heroes. And you'll see why during the course of, of our talk. So my book is called The Biblical Hero, Portraits in Nobility and Fallibility. And it's that fallibility part that, um, you know, I think that that's important that often we want to see only the nobility, but biblical portrait, biblical characters, the characters whom we hold up as heroes, including all the ones you mentioned, Mo Moses, Noah, uh, Esther, Hannah, and many, many more. These are heroes who the Bible explicitly chooses to portray with weaknesses and character flaws, uh, as well as extremely noble and heroic qualities to them. So I'm, I, my book tries to understand why that is. Um, so let's start with an understanding of what this term hero means. Um, and the hero, term hero comes from originally from Greek and then from Roman. Do you hear in the word hero, does anyone hear uh, the name of a Greek god or goddess in that word? Feel free to unmute yourself. Hera. Hercules, okay, similar, similar. Hera. Yeah, we'll be talking about Hercules. I'm sorry? Hera. Hera, exactly. Who said that? Me. <laughs> okay, you were right. Hera is exactly right. Hera, the word Hera may have the same meaning and come from the same, same word as hero. And that word Hera, Hera or hero refers to somebody who's who is a guardian or who or a protector? So the Greek word hero, uh, as it as it morphed into Latin, if you look at a Latin dictionary, which I I had the blessing of taking uh, college Latin many years ago, the word hero or heroes has has two meanings, and the first meaning they give is someone who is half a god, right? That's going to be very important when we look at biblical heroes. Because can people be half a god in here in the Bible? No. <laughs> and the second meaning is a notable person, right? The meaning we, we usually attribute to it. Now, Plato has a very important definition in his book, Protagoras, uh, an important definition that he gives to a hero, who a hero is and what a hero's function is. Quote, a student should read great works of literature to imitate or emulate their heroes and desire to become like them. I'll read again. A student should read great works of literature to imitate or emulate their heroes and desire to become like them. So heroes are first of all people who are important to, to youth. And you learn about heroes by reading them. Most importantly, heroes are cultural figures according in the ancient world, they're meaning the person who wrote my grandmother or my grandfather was a hero. I think all of us, you know, many of us feel that way. And that's a very common answer that I get. But heroes were seen not as individual, our uh, he heroes are models for individuals, but they were models for an entire culture, an entire society. And there were only to be one or two or a few uh, heroes in a society. Uh, it wasn't like healthcare workers. <laughs> um, and heroes are people who present an ideal to be studied and emulated. In other words, we don't, heroes are people whom we don't see, really see their feet of clay. They are presented almost as half gods, or as we say in America, right? We have a TV show, American Idol. Right, an idol, a hero is, is a kind of idol and there's a temptation to turn heroes into, into idols. 
Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for sure, is a huge, huge hero, absolutely. Okay, so one striking thing, when we turn to the Bible and see, try to figure out what, their, what the Bible's view of heroes is, we, we, we quickly realize that there's actually no word for hero in the Bible, it's telling. There is a word in Hebrew, and thank you for, for putting that, that slide up here. There is a word for, um, for hero in modern Hebrew, and that word is gibor. But the word gibor in biblical Hebrew refers to someone who is strong or mighty, from the word gvurah. And importantly, that word gibor is not used for many of our greatest biblical heroes, including Abraham and Moses. Who is referred to as a gibor? Nimrod, a problematic character who was an early king in, listed in Genesis. Warriors are listed as giburim. And appropriately, God is a, is a gibor. And if, in uh, Psalm 145, which we recite every day, the Ashrei, it says, Dor l'dor yishabach ma'asecha uvuratecha yagidu. Generation after generation will praise your deeds and your mighty acts they will tell. So um, God appropriately has mighty acts, but people, not so much. Uh, and certainly not heroes. So interestingly, this word gibor is it, looked down upon to some degree in uh, biblical writing. So we have the Proverbs 16, Tov erech apayim mi gibor, umoshel burucho ir. Better it is to be forbearing than mighty, to have self-control than to conquer a city. So already we see that the idea of physical strength is not what makes a hero in the Bible. That is not the ideal. And other people who have internal strength are in a sense more, are, are greater according to this view in Proverbs than, uh, than someone who has physical strength. That certainly comes up as we'll see in the depiction, the comp very complex, the depiction of Samson. Uh, and then that's spelled out even more in Pirkei Avot, chapter 4.1, who is a strong person, or perhaps already who is a hero? One who conquers their inclination. So a rabbinic, according to the ancient rabbis, a hero is somebody who has Self-restraint. Self-restraint is mightier than physical might, internal might. Somebody who has real strength is internal, spiritual, mental strength, not, not physical strength. Um, so, but so this this idea of Gibor, this, uh, this idea of a hero seems not to exist, particularly in the Bible. And so the question is, should we just give up and say that there, the Bible doesn't believe in heroes? Well, I, of course, we, can, we can't really say that because as, you, as you've shown and as, uh, as, as I think all, all Jews will tell you, the biblical characters are our original heroes, our Jewish heroes. And often we want to see them as heroes so badly that we are willing to overlook their flaws, to excuse to excuse their flaws or the way that the, the Bible portrays them, to add layers to the stories that paint over the original and turn those characters into the heroes that we want to see. And that is often what we find in Midrashic stories. Midrash often adds uh, layers of stories that uh, embellish and make uh, make the characters seem more heroic than the original stories make them seem. What happens if we look if we look at these texts of the Bible, though, as they really are? What if we accept that the flaws are put there for a reason? What if the Bible wants us to see biblical characters as flawed? That's the question that really lies behind my book. So 
the, this word idols that I mentioned, uh, is, is, an, is, I think, a very telling one. The Bible wants us to be wary of heroes, both of people whom we would make into heroes and more profoundly of our deep-seated urge to turn people into heroes. This book is an attempt to read biblical characters as they are actually presented, not as we might wish they were, and to understand them within the biblical narrator's conception of heroes. So take a step back. Imagine that you uh, have just come from a, uh, a country or a culture, or perhaps from Mars, where you've never heard of the Bible, and somebody hands you this book, and uh, and you're you're reading these about these characters, and you're trying to say, well, who's the hero here? What's so heroic about them? And you read about Adam and Eve first, and they mess up. They get one command, they mess up, and they cause tremendous pain and mortality that lasts forever. Then they, then the next character, major character is Abraham. And what does he do? He nearly kills his son. Jacob, the first, one of the first things he does, he deceives his brother and father. Moses insists to God, he doesn't want to be a leader, as we've been seeing in these recent partio. He has weak arms, and he gets angry at his followers very easily. And his followers don't particularly follow, like to follow him either. Esther, wonderful Esther, she marries a drunken misogynist king. How does, she, how does she manage that, right? How does she justify that to herself? And then David, perhaps the greatest king and for many, the greatest Jewish hero. He commits adultery with another man's wife and arranges for the husband to be killed in battle, right? So the Bible, these are all in the Bible, right? These are not these are not facts that are, are hidden or we're, we're, not suppo we're supposed to ignore. So where did this, so let me just step back for a second and, and talk about the origins uh, of this book a little bit. So my, my late father and father-in-law, when, when I used to visit them, they, whenever we came across certain sections of the Bible, it would bother them greatly. And they used to always want to bring up how could we revere Jacob? Jacob especially bothered them. How can we revere this person as a patriarch when he goes out and he deceives his father and his brother and he wins and he wins and nothing happens to him? What, how, can, how, can we, how can we respect him? And what is the Bible trying to tell us about them, right? So in order to, so we're gonna get to that a little bit later. And Jacob happens to be one of my favorite characters in the Bible. But before we do, I want to just uh, briefly look at a couple of sections of a movie uh, by, it's called Powers of Ten, and it's by the century. They were uh, very famous, remarkable furniture designers. Their furniture sells for thousands of dollars on the market. But interestingly, their creativity extended also to movie, making some movies. And uh, this movie, Powers of Ten, I recommend watching the whole thing. I think it really, uh, it, it tells us why we, you know, it explains to me at least, why we, why it is that um, we don't usually talk about these larger issues in the Bible. So um, let's take a look. Uh, AJ will be so kind as to show us uh, some a couple of brief passages so you get a sense of the movie. Oh, no sound. Begin with a scene one meter wide which we view from just one meter away. Now, every 10 seconds, we will look from 10 times farther away, and our field of view will be 10 times wider. This square is 10 meters wide, and in 10 seconds, the next square will be 10 times as wide. Our picture will center on the picnickers, even after they've been lost to sight. 100 meters wide. The distance a man can run in 10 seconds. Cars crowd the highway. Powerboats lie at their docks. The colorful bleachers are soldiers' field. 
This square is a kilometer wide, 1,000 meters. The distance a racing car can travel in 10 seconds. We see the great city on the lake shore. 10 to the fourth meters, 10 kilometers. The distance a supersonic airplane can travel in 10 seconds. We see first the rounded end of Lake Michigan, then the whole great lake, 10 to the fifth meters. The distance an orbiting satellite covers in 10 seconds. Long parades of clouds, the day's weather in the Middle West. 10 to the sixth, a one with six zeros, a million meters. Soon the Earth will show as a solid sphere. We are able to see the whole Earth now, just over a minute along the journey. The Earth diminishes into the distance, but those background stars are so much farther away that they do not yet appear to move. Okay, I think I think that's enough, AJ. Let's uh, basically the the film then takes you to the outer edges of the universe, and then it heads back to the couple lying and having a picnic uh, in Chicago, and then it takes you in the other direction. So we're going to start there at six minutes. Now we reduce the distance to our final destination by ninety percent every ten seconds. Each step much smaller than the one before. At 10 to the minus 2, 1 one-hundredth of a meter, 1 centimeter, we approach the surface of the hand. In a few seconds, we'll be entering the skin, crossing layer after layer from the outermost dead cells into a tiny blood vessel within. Skin layers vanish in turn, an outer layer of cells, felty collagen. A capillary containing red blood cells and a roughly lymphocyte. We enter the white cell among its vital. Okay, it seems to be breaking up, but I think I think everyone gets the idea. We can we can cut it now. Basically, he, the 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 film then takes you into into the skin cells. You see the actual cells, then you see the atom, and then you see within the atom a quark. <laughs> So it's a, it's a really magical movie, uh, but I think I think this is a, this movie provides a a powerful metaphor for the way that uh, interpretation happens. So if you look at uh, typical Jewish interpretation, what does it usually start with? It usually starts with a zoom in, right? We talk Jewish rabbis and Jewish commentators say they'll read a uh, you know we'll start with the Parsha, right? At most, we certainly won't start with the whole with the whole story. We start with a Parsha, and then we'll go to a pasuk, a verse. And then we'll look at a word. A word might be if a word is spelled a little bit differently than other words, it's very meaningful, right? We look at the at the finest points to to draw out meaning, which is um, which is all certainly valid and powerful. But what we don't tend to do as Jewish interpreters is step back, is zoom out. So I, I propose uh, for this book, I, I propose kind of five levels of zooming out of the stories to try to make uh, sense of them in a larger context. So if we can move on to the next slide, right? The first zoom out is, is asking the question, are biblical characters heroes in the way we understand usually understand them. How, how might we evaluate and comprehend biblical hero, by biblical characters through that lens of hero? Second, is there overall a biblical model of what a hero is? Zoom out number three, how do biblical heroes compare with heroes from other societies and cultures? Zoom out number four, what relevance can we get today from, from this understanding of biblical heroes? We've already talked about that a little bit with, with the idea of uh, frontline workers and healthcare workers as heroes. And zoom out number five, uh, there's a kind of meta question on the Torah. What meaning do we draw from it and how? How do Jewish texts inform the way we think about, act, and live in the world today? So with that, we can move to the next, uh, next slide. So I'm going to read, uh, read some passages in the book 
and uh, I have some pictures that can help kind of uh, illustrate and help us think about what it is uh, I'm, I'm discussing. So does anyone know who Rachav is? The character of Rachav. Yes, who is she? Cheryl, I see you, I see you in my, in my screen. <laughs> She uh, is the person that came out that uh, came out of the house and uh, and uh, destroyed. She killed the people. She killed the uh, the the people that were coming to. She, they thought that she was on their side, and she wasn't. Is that correct? Uh, uh, so 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 you're right. She she was on. She lived on the the edge of a of a, of a city, the city of uh, Jericho. Which the Israelite uh, Israelites sent spies to look at, look out because they were going to attack it, and she is called a uh, a zona. We'll talk about that word in a minute. But she uh, she actually helps the Israelite spies. She yeah. hides them, and then when people come to attack and kill them uh, because they heard that she's hiding them, she sends them out to escape. So she's actually. Um, uh, one of the, an important hero in, in Israelite history, and she's called a zona. I know a zona can mean, nor in today's Hebrew, it means a prostitute. There's a onkelist, the translator, says she is a, um, an innkeeper because this word zon, zona, it's related to the word lazun, to feed, to, uh, and mazon, food. So it's not exactly clear what it means, but it, it may not be the most uh, glorious of, of traits, <laughs> of professions. But oh, she, I think that this is the important thing to emphasize, that she is, she is depicted as, as heroic. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to read a passage about, uh, about Judaism and the Bible that helps to explain how characters like Rachav can be a hero. The diminished stature of heroes in the Bible can also be seen by contrasting Moses's place in Judaism with that of leading exemplars in other religions. Unlike most other religions, Judaism is not based on hero worship. For Christianity, Islam, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Zoroastrianism, the religion's message is inseparable from the adoration of the message's original bearer. The religion's founder is considered to be perfect, a model for all adherents to emulate through the generations. Judaism, by contrast, is not Mosesism. Despite Moses's centrality in the Torah, Moses is too flawed in character, too physically weak, and too limited in his role to be venerated. He is mentioned surprisingly little in the rest of the Bible, mostly in the expression Torah of Moses. In the Bible, he is not the paragon of wisdom, Solomon is, nor is he the greatest leader, that is David. The same holds true for Moses' place in Jewish tradition. Consider that in the Passover Haggadah, Moses is mentioned only once, and even there he is not acknowledged as a hero, but called my God's servant. In fact, the Haggadah greatly minimizes Moses' role in Israel's salvation, thereby increasing God's credit in the process. A well-known Midrash envisions Moses visiting the, the academy of Rabbi Akiva, who lived some 13 centuries later. Moses does not understand Akiva, yet, quote, his mind is set at ease when Akiva attributes his teaching to Moses given at Sinai. The rabbis recognize Moses as a supreme receiver of the law, but not the supreme interpreter. Judaism does not invest in one central role model because it does not propose that one human being can so greatly exceed all others in the quest for perfection. One cannot imagine Jews asking, as Christians do of Jesus, what would Moses do? Likewise, Jesus's biography is an essential message of Christianity. And the same can be said of Muhammad for Islam or Buddha for Buddhism. Their lives embody their messages. By contrast, even without Moses's presence, the religious messages in the Torah largely endure. Put plainly, Moses is the transmitter, not the originator of God's laws. The Torah makes it clear that Moses is not to be mistaken for an object of worship. 
perhaps most telling in this regard is that the Torah is not given first to Moses as God's appointed vessel to then be conveyed to the people. Rather, God gives the Torah to all the people standing at Mount Sinai. Since the people grow fearful of God's presence, Moses steps in to receive God's word. But the fact remains that God's intended communication was to all the people at once. God effectively conveys the message, do not confuse any human intermediary with me. At the end of Deuteronomy, the Torah calls Moses the greatest Israelite prophet who ever lived because he saw God face to face. Yet even this praise appears somewhat mixed. A prophet is not the primary role associated with Moses's career and his close relationship with God derives as much from God's special care for him as from any of Moses's particular qualities. Also, Jacob makes the identical claim to have seen God face to face after wrestling with the angel. Moses thus serves a most ambiguous role as a hero to emulate and as an object lesson against turning people into heroes. Right? So I think the Bible significantly downplays the divine nature of heroes as was often generally seen in the ancient world and even beyond. Um, but by doing so, it also opens up an, a space for many more people to be seen and acknowledged as heroes. Let's now jump to the next slide, if we would. And here we have a scene from a famous movie, The Ten Commandments, and uh, it's the showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. I have a passage that talks about that showdown. What is the what is the nature of that showdown? Who is more powerful? Um, okay, Pharaoh, nemesis or foil? A narrative principle as sure as a rule of chemistry holds that every great hero must have an anti-hero, and Moses is no exception. Like Lancelot and Arthur, Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes, or Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. The menacing Pharaoh elicits the heroic features of his noble opponent. From this perspective, Pharaoh is Moses's nemesis, the two arch enemies clasped in a perpetual struggle. But one may legitimately take a different view of Pharaoh. Sometimes, instead of appearing the powerful yet worthy opponent, Pharaoh comes across as the buffoon. As he rants and raves, commands and dismisses, his bluster comes at the price of a vast ignorance of himself and a cosmic overestimation of his own powers. From this view, Pharaoh serves as Moses's foil rather than his nemesis. A foil refers to the gold or silver leaf upon which a ring is placed. It sets off the ring and makes it shine. A character who is a foil is of a different order than the protagonist. He is a lightweight, a diversion whose sole purpose is to help us see an aspect or aspects of the main character more clearly. Whereas a nemesis is the opponent one can't ignore, a foil is a reflection that serves only to make the protagonist appear brighter. Pharaoh may be the opposite of Moses, a fool or a madman who makes Moses's wisdom and sanity more evident. Or he may be an equal of Moses, a figure who possesses something of Moses inside himself and perhaps reveals a side of Moses through their resemblance. Which is the real Pharaoh? Is he a buffoon who doesn't listen or learn, a fool who can't change or acknowledge the truth? If so, he is akin to the character of Malvolio in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, who embarrasses himself by believing he has powers and charms far above his actual capacities. Or is his self-delusion the kind of, of a raging lunatic who believes he is God's gift to the world, the destined heir of a universal empire? like Christopher Marlowe's Tamburlaine, a world conqueror who starts out calling himself the scourge of God and ends in the belief that he is greater than God. Perhaps Pharaoh is a figure whose conceitedness is so vast that the reader has no handle for sympathy, only horror and amazement. Or is there something more worthy in Pharaoh, a touch of the heroic in him? Is he the victim of a more powerful enemy, God, who attacks both his physical and mental powers? Is there in fact a deeper side to Pharaoh? Might he like Moses wrestle with himself, but nonetheless act impetuously and commit mistakes with dire consequences? Might some part of him know what right, what's right, but can't openly acknowledge it because 
it is too much of a threat. Or might he desire, but ultimately prove unable to entirely control his acts and, or, or emotions? In other words, is there a tragic, even sympathetic side to Pharaoh, which might be compared to a tragic side of Moses? A side that leads Pharaoh to descend into madness in the face of the inescapable, overwhelming arm of justice bearing down on him. Is Pharaoh an Egyptian version of King Saul, flailing about with desperation and helplessness once God severs him and his offspring from the seat of power? Okay, I go on, but you get you get the idea. Um, all right, let's turn next to Samson. Next, next slide, please. Thank you. So this uh, this passage compares Samson to Hercules. Somebody somebody uh, previously mentioned Hercules, uh, and uh, you can see these pictures make it very clear that Hercules and Samson have uh, many similar similarities in common. Um, okay, the Jewish Heracles. The middle sequence of the Samson saga consists of a series of demonstrations of the hero's might. The reader attends, as it were, the performance of a circus strongman. Samson kills a lion with his bare hands. He taunts the men of Ashkelon, then kills 30 all at once. Later, he catches 300 foxes, ties burning torches to their tails, and sets them loose among the Philistine grain, destroying their crop. When the Philistines confront him, Samson grabs the jawbone of an ass and slays another thousand Philistines. Fearless of his enemy, he goes down yet again to Gaza, the Philistine heartland. While the Philistines wait to ambush him, he rises in the middle of the night, grabs the massive doors of the town gates, and carries them on his shoulders miles away. After each feat, one can imagine an MC calling, and for his next act, dot, dot, dot. In this section, Samson appears to resemble Heracles, also called Hercules, much more closely than he approximates other biblical heroes. This comparison has been noted since the fourth century. For their first displays, both heroes kill a lion, showcasing their supreme strength and courage. Heracles' exploit emphasizes the supernatural basis of his strength. Just as the Nemean lion he kills is itself half a monster, so Heracles himself is more than human. Quote, Eurystheus ordered him to bring the skin, Hercules, to bring the skin of the Nemean lion. Now that was an invul invulnerable beast begotten by Typhon. And having come to Nemea and tracked the lion, he first shot an arrow at him. But when he perceived that the beast was invulnerable, he heaved up his club and made after him. And when the lion took refuge in a cave with two mouths, Hercules built up one entrance and came in upon the beast through the other, and putting his arm around its neck, held it tight till he had choked it. By contrast, under the sway of monotheism, the biblical passage does not portray the lion or, or Samson as exactly supernatural. Instead, the description of Samson's exploit emphasizes the raw brutality of his strength. Quote, when he came to the vineyards of Timnah, a full-grown lion came roaring at him. The spirit of the Lord gripped him, and he tore, tore him asunder with his bare hands as one might tear a kid asunder. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. If Samson is not part deity like his Greek counterpart, he is at least a temporary deity, a vehicle for God's will. Quote, the spirit of the Lord gripped him at crucial moments in his story. The way in which Samson destroys nature's most feared and vicious killer makes him appear like a lion himself. This comparison aligns Samson not only with Heracles, but more broadly with the ancient pagan hero for whom the lion provided the model of bravery, strength, and nobility in military action. Dozens of heroic similes in the Iliad compare warriors to lions. Yet the fact that Samson hides this deed from his parents indicates that Within the biblical context, there is something unseemly about his evisceration of the lion. The exercise, this exercise of his strength, instead of aligning Samson with his people's destiny, as suggested previously, now serves exactly the opposite function. It severs him from them. Okay, so I continue as I continue in the chapter to discuss that these 
these qualities that appear heroic in Heracles and other ancient heroes appear less than heroic in Samson, just as we saw before that a Gibor, a str strong man, restraint is not ultimately a quality that's particularly prized or at one that is set up for emulation in biblical stories, it renders Samson a, a very problematic type of hero. Now let's move to the next slide and look at Esther. So Esther is someone I uh, compare to Scheherazade, a famous heroine of the Thousand One Nights um, in a Persian classic. And here in Rembrandt's depiction, we see Esther as, as I describe her uh, towards the beginning of her career. This is um, Mordechai presenting Esther to Ahasuerus, a scene that doesn't exactly appear in the, in the Bible, but it conveys the essence that Esther is, she, she's on her knees. She's someone who at the beginning of the story is follows the orders. She follows Mordechai's orders. She follows the orders of the head of the, uh, the harem who primes her to be in the beauty contest. And then she moves, she's transferred over to Ahasuerus and, and is forced to follow his orders and doesn't yet have a voice of her own. Fairy tale queen. The most significant difference between these two Persian queens, Esther and Scheherazade, is that Scheherazade acts like a hero from the beginning, whereas Esther must grow into one. Like many a fairy tale hero, Esther is an orphan. Both her parents have died, and a bachelor uncle has raised her. Her orphan status suggests a poor background. She belongs to the Jewish people, a group exiled from their homeland and now living in Persia. The fact that Esther hides her Jewish identity on Mordecai's command indicates that the Persians generally considered Jews to be unwanted outsiders. In just one chapter, Esther vaults up the social ladder. Her rags to riches trajectory takes her in just a few short steps from poor Jewish outcast to Persian queen. If this were indeed a fairy tale, the story would end here with the couple living happily ever after. But the differences from a fairy tale clue the reader that trouble lies ahead and the story is far from over. First, there's this disturbing matter of the drunken capricious husband, not exactly the prized handsome prince. Second, the path to becoming a queen was far too quick and easy without the trials and obstacles lending the sense that the married couple had earned each other. Third, Esther remains largely unknown to the reader who has only the vaguest sense that there's some special quality within her. All that the narrator has mentioned to date is her physical beauty, a quality that is never sufficient for a heroine. As we shall see, instead of a fairy tale, the story of Esther is closer to a fairy tale in reverse, starting with the happy ending and working backward through the heroine's confrontation with danger and triumph through bravery. Unlike Scheherazade, Esther does nothing of her own free will at the beginning of her story. The first verb concerning her is in the passive. Esther was taken to the king's palace. This passive verb is emblematic of her entire condition during the forthcoming period. Things will be done to her, mostly by Mordecai and the king, but also by Haggai, the eunuch, and other unnamed actors. In this instance, we are not told who does the taking. Esther is a person who is taken, a young woman controlled by men with no sense yet of her own power. The king will control her through the mechanisms of the beauty contest to select the next queen. She will obey Mordecai by hiding her natural or, national origins and later on conveying Mordecai's message to the king, alerting him to a rebellious plot. She will succeed in the contest by winning Haggai's favor and then spending the next 12 months being transformed at Haggai's beauty salon. Seven maids will prepare her a cocktail of perfumes and cosmetics and coached by Haggai, she will repeat his words to the king and win his love. Throughout this time, she appears highly capable of acting on the instructions of others, but we never hear her speaking in her own words or taking her own initiative. I'll just skip to the end of this section <clears throat> uh, about the question of Esther's motives. 
Does Esther want to win the contest? And if so, why? Does she seek glory and riches for herself? Or does she seek the power to influence the king on her people's behalf? In other words, does she foresee what's in store or more generally recognize that the Jews in Persia occupy a precarious position and need the king's protection, which can only be secured by someone in his in inner circle? Does she participate in the contest in order to defend her people by acquiring a voice in the chambers of power, as does Scheherazade? Is there a sense in which her actions throughout the book are part of her calculations from the beginning? It is possible that Esther's silence hides one or more of these motives, but it might also be true that she harbors a mix of emotions, thoughts, and goals that are not clarified or of which she is not entirely aware. She might be flattered by the attention, honor, and adulation one moment and brought back to the reality of the king's character and the Jew's situation the next. Her silence may cover a plan. It may cover no plan, or it may conceal a bewildering stew of feelings waiting for meaning, direction, and lucidity. Okay, I think I'll end here to allow time for questions. Okay, Elliot, if you want to field the questions yourself, friends, feel free to jump in as you wish. Please, by all means. Just the comment, oops. Just the comment about Shimshon or Samson. Um, I, I strongly feel that a part of his personality was determined by the fact that he was designated to be a Nazir. And that's, that's a tough road to hoe. Uh, and my take is, in some ways, he was just acting out. What does that mean, he was just acting out? What do you, you know, mean by that? All this, this strong man stuff, uh, dallying with foreign women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, so are you saying that he was selected by God and he is kind of like Moses in that he didn't really want to, he felt it was kind of imposed on him and he didn't really want to be the great I, leader that God was expecting him to be? I wouldn't, I, th I think Moses grew into the job. I don't think Shimshon ever did. Fair, fair point. Although Moses also always struggles his whole life. He always struggles with being the hero. And we see that even at the end of the, his career, he strikes the rock and angers God. He never quite entirely masters himself. If, if the idea of a, a hero, according to uh, the rabbis, is one who covetous Yitzro, who masters his own inclination, Moses never entirely gets a handle on his inclination, right? And but, certainly, but, certainly all the more so, Shimshon, but not he, a chance. Moshe is definitely a better role model than Shimshon, in my humble opinion. <laughs> definitely. But, um, but Shimshon, he's, he's, so, he's so much like a Hercules. He's so much not like a biblical hero throughout his career. And then he has that pivotal moment at the end. There's one moment where he, after his, he's made the biggest mistake of his life. He's let, um, he's let Delilah and, and her men take out his, gouge out his eyes and take them in shackles to Dagon, the enemy God's palace. And they're having a big feast. He has a moment where he has genuine it seems genuine contrition. He prays to God. He feels the weight of what he, has, what he has done and asks for one more chance, not for himself, but for his people. So he is, there's that one moment. And that one, one moment perhaps changes our whole view of, of Samson, or perhaps not, depending upon the interpreter. But the, the, the story gives us that opportunity. Definitely. Thank you. Are, are the um, biblical heroes meant to be models for us? Things, or is it that is a model and what they can do that rises above the way they're presented? How are we as individuals? Should we approach them and message we should receive that that was was 
Hashem or whoever wrote it was was intending for us. Mm -hmm. I think the the lesson is complicated and it has has at least two parts. And I think the complexity is part of is really a big part of the message because the Bible is not a book that's meant to be read simply and discarded, right? We read it over and over and over again uh, because it because it is complicated and because we can draw new lessons from it each time we read it. And so the complexity is one that human beings are not idols, they're not heroes, they're not in those in the traditional sense, they're not gods, and we have a disturbing tendency to want our heroes to be gods. Right. And when they're not gods, when we when we discover that our heroes are not perfect, we often want to tear them down. Right. We tear, we tear the statues down. Some statues are worth tearing down, but, but some maybe aren't. And sometimes we tear them down too quickly because we have these unrealistic expectations about what humans can be and what humans can accomplish. At the same time, we need heroes. We need heroes badly. Right. And we need models of people who are uh, who who do extraordinary things at certain moments, and whom we we try to model ourselves after. Because how do we learn to be fully human if we don't have heroes that we or people we emulate? So we just have to be we have to be careful and walk that walk that fine line and and be aware of those. Those two aspects, I think both aspects of those messages are, are really what the Bible is telling us. And most people, you know, want their heroes to be, to be perfect, you know. And, and so the, the Bible isn't the place to look for those kind of perfect heroes. Somebody asked about, somebody asked about comic book heroes, right? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Someone, oh, yeah. someone asked about comic book heroes. Now... Um, someone asked about comic book heroes. So uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Superheroes by nature are, tend to be, you know, uh, more the half God type of heroes. And they usually have some half God type of superpower that normal people don't have. Of course, there are some comic book heroes that really try to, uh, despite those, those extra supernatural powers, they, they show their heroes as more complex and um, and not and not so perfect uh, in in various ways. So I, I think there are different ways that modern. I'm I'm certainly no expert, but there there are different ways that modern uh, comic books portray superheroes. Great. Judy has a question, and then I have one after her. It seems to me that Jew, uh, the Jewish tradition or Jewish approach to hero heroism redefines what the mission of the hero is which is to serve God and the Jewish people and to credit God with all of the success and to have it all be in that context rather than to be self-aggrandizing or, or otherwise. Humility is viewed as the, the greatest heroism of all in, in, in Moses. Absolutely, 100%. So what you say is, is absolutely true that, that uh, essential to a hero is, uh, is a kind of humility, right? We say that Moses' her heroism, a large part of Moses' heroism, came because he was the most humble man, according to tradition, right? The, the most humble person who, who of his time or whoever lived. And, humil and humility is a key component of heroism. You cannot be a hero. It's, it, it's a sine qua non. You cannot be a hero without having that kind of humility and recognizing that your own limits, you have limitations and that you need, you need God's help. Uh, that without God's help, we, we can accomplish nothing. At the same time though, we see characters who acknowledge God's presence and God's help and yet still have major flaws, right? So David, for example, David is someone who, at certain moments in his story, definitely uh, says, gives thanks to God and, and acknowledges uh, God's role in his 
heroic actions, really unlike, unlike Samson, and we just saw. And yet uh, he goes on after, after showing that humility, after recognizing that human greatness is only possible through partnership with God. At the same time, he then goes on to, um, to have his affair with uh, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and, and to kill him. And God then comes and says, David, what have you done? You are, you, are the, uh, you are the guilty one, and you're going to have to suffer for it. So that recognition is, I would say, a beginning, a foundation, something fundamental for somebody in the Bible to achieve anything. But it's not necessarily enough, and it's not enough still to uh, avoid recognition that people are very complex and often problematic. Wow. Okay. So there's so much here. Uh, there's so much here. Oh, Susan has a hand up. I was, uh, yeah, Susan. Hi, I'm in Minneapolis. And, um, it's, it's not 70 degrees and we're not having a snowstorm though. It's, it's rather balmy <laughs> today. Um, would you consider any of the prophets to be heroes? You know, Jeremiah, Amos, any of those, Isaiah, or I don't know if they're humble, but um, give me your <laughs> thoughts on that. <laughs> That's a great question. I, I didn't particularly look at uh, prophets um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think prophets are more teachers than heroes. I think they are certainly... Uh, some of them are certainly shown to be extraordinarily brave and heroic in taking on leaders uh, and the powerful. And that, that is definitely heroic. We don't see, usually we don't, with most of them, we don't see as many stories about them uh, as we do with, with some of these other characters. And we don't, we often don't see, uh, my contention in the book is that the fullest portrayal of biblical character comes with this kind of light and dark, good and bad uh, depiction. And we don't see that quite to the same extent in uh, biblical prophets. So that's, that's why I didn't go into them. I'll take that. But, but, that, but that said, I just want to say that the, the people in, in my book are not, you know, the number of heroes in the Bible is not at all uh, limited to the people in my book. In fact, that's really the point of uh, one of the major points that I make is that the Bible shows that dozens of people are and can be and can rise up to be heroes. That oh. heroes aren't just those leaders that are often kings <laughs> or great leaders of society uh, who alone represents, you know, all the values of uh, that the society embodies. Okay, great. I'll take the I'll take the last question here, if I may. Um, yeah, this is great, and there's so there's so much more to talk about here, and um, I, I hope folks will check out the book. Um, and, and it's a new way to learn Torah because there's people who want to learn Torah and they want to reread it that everyone is perfect, nobody did anything wrong, and others want to throw it out because they see these flaws. And both of those feel to me very unnuanced, um, and and it's very exciting. But I guess so. Part of my question is is um, what we do with emerging adults, I mean, that's always a question, right? What do you do with emerging adults? But what do you do, right? emerging adulthood is really tricky because you start to see the nuances of life. And let's just take a, a child's relationship to their parent. You think your parent is like God, is like a prophet when you're a little kid, maybe. And then you're like, whoa, they're flawed. So then you start to rebel. And then you think they're even more flawed than they are. And then you run the other way. And then you get older and you're like, oh, I'm really flawed too. And they did the best they could do. And you kind of come around. And that seems the case with um, how we think of heroes also, right? When you're a kid, there's these perfect heroes and then they, it all crashes and burns, but then you come back to a nuanced perspective. And so I wonder how you would advise psychologically, we help, we help others to develop this idea that you can learn amazing things from amazing people who are deeply flawed. Because that statement seems so obvious to most of us. And yet some people, they can't really get that. It's like all the hierarchy has come down. Everyone is equal. The, no one has any greatness at all. There's no one, you know. And so how do we kind of pedagogically help people to, to make that next step? Does that make sense? That's it's an awesome question. And 
I, I think, you know, I think what you're saying is it's so it's so on target and profound. And the the thing is, you have to work with people. You have to work with people exactly where they are and, and how they view things. And, and there's no there's not necessarily, you know, there's certainly no just as there's no one model of what a hero is. There's certainly there's no one model of where people are at any given in one classroom, you can have, you know, uh, my daughter, I have a daughter who's 17 years old and, you know, you can have 30 17 year olds in a classroom and some will say, oh, Moshe, he's up here. He's the greatest ever. We cannot say anything negative against Moshe, blah, blah, blah. And others, you know, who reject everything. And uh, so you, you know, you, you need to work with each kid where they are. But I would say in, for most people, and I was certainly like this, like you say, if you if you present an image of people that's unrealistic, they and they're going to rebel and reject it more than if you say, you know what, it, it, embrace embrace the nuance because each of us inside of ourselves are complex and multifaceted and nuanced and imperfect, right? So I think trying to help those help people help those kids find within themselves. Um, their potential for heroism and their potential for doing all kinds of things and recognizing that messiness inside of them is a way for them to start to relate yes. to the, the heroes in the Bible. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Elliot Raven, um, for this fascinating session. And I hope folks will check out the book. And uh, if you weren't here in the beginning, I shared we have five more learning opportunities just this week. The only one I want to highlight in particular is Thursday. We're going to learn together with the uh, with Jews in, in the in the Jewish community in Vienna, Austria. So we're going to start some global engagement with other communities. We hope you'll join that. We're starting a 10-part class on Rav Cook. Lots of other things. Hope to see you soon. Thank you, uh, Dr. Raven. Thank you all for joining us. Have a great day. Thank you so much.